Hey, let's talk about sex. Sexual dysfunction, actually, the American College of OBGYN has just released a published ahead of print clinical expert series on female sexual dysfunction. It's not out in print yet, but we're going to cover it in this podcast. The ACOG does have a renewed focus and a new spotlight on female sexual dysfunction because it really is a big hindrance to overall female well-being and can affect, obviously, the quality of certain relationships. So let's get to female sexual dysfunction now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Female sexual dysfunction is defined as a sexual problem associated with personal distress. According to the DSM-5, sexual dysfunctions are a heterogeneous group of disorders that are typically characterized by a clinically significant disturbance in a person's ability to respond sexually or to experience sexual pleasure. An individual may, of course, have several sexual dysfunctions at the same time. Sexual dysfunctions may be lifelong or acquired and may be generalized or situational. Sexual dysfunction is common among women. An international survey of over 13,000 women aged 40 to 80 years across 29 countries found that up to 26 to 43% reported low sexual desire and 18 to 41% reported inability to achieve orgasm. Additionally, in the United States, the Brisside study surveyed over 30,000 women investigating not only the prevalence of sexual dysfunction, but also its associated distress. It demonstrated that 43% of women reported low desire, low arousal, or difficulties with orgasm. Of those women, 22% reported sexually related personal distress. Okay, now let's review some of the more historic models about sexual response because they've changed. Historically, sexual response was defined as a series of linear progressions like the one described by Masters and Johnson. This was a linear model stating four phases of sexual response, including excitement, plateau, orgasm, and of course, resolution. This approach was then modified by Kaplan to include desire before excitement and orgasm. However, subsequent studies found that these models were predominantly based on the male sexual response, which as we all know, is linear and pretty simple. But not all women experienced this kind of linear reaction. In 2003, Basson advocated for expansion and revision of the definition of sexual response and dysfunction in women. It's now recognized that rather than progressing in this linear sequence from desire to arousal to orgasm and resolution, these phases overlap and the sequence varies. It's also more of a circular than a linear reaction. It is generally understood that despite the biological foundation for sexual health, sexual functioning is experienced in a far more complex context with influences of environment and interpersonal relationships.
If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, now let's get into the physiology, the physical changes, of course, that happen with the female sexual response. The physiology of female sexual desire and arousal is complex, and of course, it's multifactorial. It is thought to involve a combination of parasympathetic and sympathetic stimulation, as well as sex hormones in environmental and psychological factors. Sexual arousal begins in the central nervous system, mediated by the medial pre-optic anterior hypothalamic and other related limbic hippocampal structures. Sexual arousal and erotic stimulation lead to release of vasodilators, nitric oxide, and vasointestinal polypeptide, both from parasympathetic and sympathetic nerves. Acetylcholine is similarly released, which blocks the vasoconstrictive mechanisms and leads to additional release of nitric oxide. The release of these neurotransmitters leads to vaginal vasocongestion and relaxation of the vaginal smooth muscles, allowing its expansion. And there's dilation of the arterioles, which increases the transudation of the interstitial fluid, promoting vaginal wetness and lubrication. Now, estrogens also play a critical role in the female sexual response and function. Estrogen is thought to affect cells throughout the central nervous system and vasoprotective and vasodilatory effects also occur. Decrease in estrogen leads to thinning of the vaginal mucosal epithelium and atrophy of the smooth muscle. So, with a decline in estrogen during menopause, either natural or surgical changes in sexual function are common. There are some studies evaluating the role of estrogen levels and vasocongestion that suggest the relationship is more complex and that low estrogen may make postmenopausal women more vulnerable to sexual dysfunction, but it's not entirely causative. Testosterone is similarly thought to play a role in female sexual arousal and function. However, low serum levels have not been demonstrated to be associated with decreased sexual interest or arousal. Testosterone and dopamine supplementation have been found to improve response, suggesting, though, that there is some role for these pathways. But of course, remember that testosterone use should only be used short term and in the appropriate patient. All right, podcast team, we are moving on to risk factors for sexual dysfunction. Remember, of course, that the etiology of sexual dysfunction is complex and it's multifactorial. Medical and psychiatric conditions, medications, fatigue and stress, age and menopausal status, and even relationship norms and environmental factors all play a role on proper sexual function or sexual dysfunction. Medical comorbidities, specifically gynecological conditions, may affect sexual function. Sexual function can be affected by pregnancy and the postpartum period. Remember, this is a multifactorial issue with both anatomical and hormonal changes playing a role. Okay, now I've got to be honest, I always forget that this factor can also cause sexual dysfunction. I just take it for granted and it always escapes my thought processes, but it's a real thing. Infertility similarly affects intimacy, so make sure to ask these infertile couples about sexual dysfunction. 
In one study, 43 to 90% of women with infertility reported some type of sexual dysfunction. Of course, gynecological conditions, including pelvic organ prolapse, endometriosis, or certain gen malignancies can also affect sexual health and play a role in female sexual dysfunction. All right, listen up, everyone, because here's a clinical pearl. The Preside study found that depression and anxiety are associated with increased risk for sexual dysfunction. And of course, that shouldn't come as any surprise. In fact, according to the college, some would argue that mental health is the most important risk factor for sexual dysfunction. Now, we shouldn't rush to conclusions. And just because a couple presents or a woman presents with sexual dysfunction, we shouldn't automatically assume that she's anxious or depressed. But that's an important clinical pearl that, according to the college, mental health can be the most important risk factor for sexual dysfunction. And of course, unfortunately, the medications used to treat these conditions, like benzodiazepines, SSRIs, or mood stabilizers, are also known for their adverse effect on sexual arousal and the ability to achieve orgasm. Nonetheless, care should always be taken to identify the effect of mental health on sexual function and sexual well-being. As we wrap up this issue about risk factors, remember that multiple studies have demonstrated that dissatisfaction with a partner or a lack of emotional connectiveness has also been associated with sexual dysfunction. Additionally, a history of childhood sexual abuse or adult sexual assault increases the risk of sexual dysfunction, and this may present with dyspareunia difficulties with interest, arousal or orgasm, or the plain avoidance of sex. Now, although rates of sexual dysfunction are higher among women with sexual abuse, it is critical to not assume that all women with sexual dysfunction have an abuse history, just like it's crucial to assume that not all of them have a history or a current state of depression or anxiety. All right, let's review the four primary diagnoses for female sexual dysfunction according to the DSM-5. These are female sexual interest and arousal disorder, which includes the former hypoactive sexual desire disorder. The next is female orgasmic disorder. The third is genital pelvic pain and penetration disorder. And the fourth is substance or medication-induced sexual dysfunction. All right, now remember, just because there's four different boxes doesn't mean that there can't be some overlap or more than one sexual dysfunction at a time. Let's review female sexual interest and arousal disorder first. Female sexual interest and arousal disorder is a broad category of female sexual dysfunction, and it's characterized by a lack of interest in sexual activity or difficulty with arousal. Now remember, this was the previously hypoactive sexual desire disorder definition. When considering female sexual interest and arousal disorder, women may report absent or reduced interest in sexual activity or reduction in erotic thoughts. They may also note a reluctance to initiate sexual activity and a lack of response to initiation from a partner. Now, it's important to remember that there are a variety of ways that this disorder may present. A woman may be distressed by a persistent lack of interest in sexual activity or despite a desire for sexual activity, she may May not be able to become sexually excited. So remember, these two things have been grouped together in one category of reduced interest or arousal. 
Now remember, of course, that fluctuations in sexual interest and arousal can be a normal response to changes in a woman's life, particularly with stress, fatigue, environmental changes, or new medical diagnoses. That's why, for this criteria to be met, the symptoms must cause distress and be present for at least six months. Now, female sexual interest and arousal disorder is often associated with other difficulties, like difficulties achieving orgasm or pain with sexual activity. Remember that there can be some overlap between these four principal diagnoses. All right, now here's another clinical pearl. According to the college, female sexual interest and arousal disorder is the most common cause of female sexual dysfunction and is often the most difficult to treat. Now, the etiologies of this can be varied and include organic, medical causes, or of course, some psychological conditions. All right, let's move on to female orgasmic disorder. Female orgasmic disorder occurs in women when orgasm or significant sexual pleasure is not achieved despite significant stimulation. Now, it's important to meet the criteria for this formally, which means that in order for criteria to be met, these features must be present with almost all or nearly all, which is 75 to 100 percent of sexual encounters and must persist for six months and cause significant distress to the patient. Of course, as you guessed it, the etiology for this condition are multifactorial and range from true medical issues to, of course, psychological disturbances, and these have to be rooted out during the workup and the evaluation of the patient. Let's move on to the third category, which is genital pelvic pain and penetration disorders. Of course, this includes things like dyspareunia and vaginismus. Now, this condition can also include fear or anxiety about pain in anticipation of intercourse and marked tensing or tightening of the pelvic floor muscles even during a gynecological exam. So if you find examples of vaginismus on examination, then make sure to ask the patient about this condition. Genital pelvic pain and penetration disorder includes intercourse, but it also includes things like gynecological exams like we just covered and even tampon insertions. So make sure to look for those red flags and ask patients about those issues that can reflect in sexual behaviors as well. Genital pelvic pain and penetration disorder is often associated with female sexual interest or arousal dysfunction, although not always. Remember, of course, that there's always some overlap between these conditions. Now, genital pelvic pain and penetration disorder is very difficult to treat because the etiology is very multifactorial and it's difficult to isolate. Now, common reasons for pain during intercourse can include organic causes like endometriosis, vaginitis, menopause, or malignancy. But of course, there's also some psychological issues or other anatomical factors like a septum in the vagina or narrowing of the vagina from another pathological condition. That's why this condition is difficult to treat and it's important to hone down on the etiology as much as possible. All right, podcast listeners, remember, we haven't really talked about any specific therapies for these dysfunctions yet, but we'll do that in part two. But let's bring this to a wrap as we talk about the last condition, the last DSM-5 category, which has to do with substance or medication-induced sexual dysfunction.
Of all the four DSM-5 categories, this is probably the most straightforward. Substance or medication-induced sexual dysfunction is a clinically significant disturbance in sexual function with evidence from evaluation of the patient that the symptoms developed during or soon after the use of a medication or a substance. Many substances can cause female sexual dysfunction, including alcohol, cocaine, anxiolytics, sedatives, and opioids. Similarly, withdrawal from these substances can also affect sexual function. As for medications, we're all familiar with SSRIs and some antipsychotics. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are particularly associated with difficulty with orgasm. Time from initiation of the medication to start of side effects may be as rapid as 8 days. For some, the dysfunction will resolve after 6 months of use if they're persistent in taking the medication, although of course that's a difficult call to make. Approximately 50% of patients taking antipsychotics will also report adverse sexual side effects including inhibited desire and decreased lubrication. All right, we have wrapped up part one of female sexual dysfunction, which has covered the prevalence, risk factors, and the DSM-5 categories, of which there's four in this episode. In the next installment, which is part two, we're going to talk about the specific treatments for each of these different types of categories. Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.